Welcome to this special episode of the Doha Debates podcast. I'm Dina Takruri, your host for today and a senior presenter with AJ+. Today, you'll be listening to a thought-provoking town hall conversation on Orientalism, which I had the honor of moderating. This discussion was recorded live at the vibrant VCU Arts University campus in Education City, Doha on November 14th. If you'd like to watch this important conversation, head over to our YouTube page at youtube.com backslash Doha Debates. And now, let's dive into this engaging conversation. Hello, and welcome to this town hall from Doha Debates. I'm Dina Takruri, and I'll be your moderator for our discussion on Orientalism. So you might be wondering why we're having a conversation about 19th century art at this moment, or how it can help us better understand the world today. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to address the current events in the region, which I know is affecting, are affecting so many of us today. With so much violence happening so close, it can be challenging to focus on something like art. But this discussion is very much framed by the ongoing events. To grasp the connection, let's take a brief moment to unpack what Orientalism really is, because it sounds a bit academic, doesn't it? And it is. But even if you've never heard the term before, you may find it surprisingly familiar at first sight. Let's have a look. Baghdad, city of magic. Come for the woman and your head. What did I just watch? I made that up. You sure did. Ever heard of Orientalism? Well, this is it. Let's rewind back to parts of the 18th and 19th century, when Orientalism was an aesthetic movement that examined the Arab, North African, and Asian worlds through newly introduced Western eyes. The paintings from this period, after France invaded Egypt, show a fascination with the East, but also a reduction. They often portrayed Arabs and Asians as villainous, exotic, barbaric, mysterious. Women, in particular, are helpless and highly sexualized. They stand to say even more about how these artists from the West viewed their own culture in relation, masculine, rational, superior. But Orientalism isn't just an artistic movement. Palestinian-American scholar Edward Said reimagined the definition in his book entitled Orientalism. In it, he argues, the Orient was almost a European invention and had been since antiquity a place of romance, exotic beings, haunting memories and landscapes, remarkable experiences. For him, the 20th century was no different. Fanaticism, violence, etc., always associated with the Arabs, with Islam. Arabs are always being killed. They're always associated with what is negative uh, and, and, and regressive. Sounds a lot like where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Especially in pop culture, the Orient, which comes from the Latin word Oriens, or East, is a direction, not a place. East of what? Of whom? Unclear. But let me tell you, there's lots of camels. And sensual, albeit blurry, desert heat. On the other hand is the Occident, the West. And there are real-world implications to how we view each other. Besides reinforcing stereotypes, if the Middle East, North Africa, and Asia are backwards, inferior places in need of saving, someone just might try. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, 
to free its people and to defend the world from grave danger. Yet others argue that Orientalism, as it relates to art, hasn't necessarily had such far-ranging implications. Ultimately, are many of these depictions often seen as problematic? Yes. And is there potential to learn something valuable from them? Also yes. Some scholars argue that Orientalism should be framed beyond stereotypes to allow space for the study of how cultures come to understand one another. Today, media companies and museums alike are trying to navigate their position on showcasing historic representations by deciding whether to retain, recontextualize, or remove them entirely. If you stream Aladdin today, for example, you'll see an unskippable message that Disney added before the film. It reads in part, this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. In an increasingly polarized world, it's worth asking whether recontextualization for these depictions is the right approach, what value they can offer as is, or if outright exclusion makes the most sense. So, we've just learned a bit about the Palestinian-American scholar Edward Said and his seminal work, Orientalism. It's crucial to note that his work was partly driven by the 1973 war between Egypt, Syria, and Israel, and particularly by the Western media's portrayal of Arabs in its coverage. He argued that the human side of the Islamic and especially Arab world is rarely found in such coverage, and I'm sure many of us here have witnessed examples of this ourselves. I certainly have as a journalist based in the US. And we all know the significant impact Western media has today, and we all share the frustration when they get it wrong. Many of us here in the room tonight identify as Arab, but as we know, Arabs are not a monolith. We represent a mosaic of distinct cultures, traditions, and dialects. But because Western media and pop culture are so influential, their depiction of us matters. Tonight, I invite you to delve into the deep roots of Orientalism as Edward Said understood it, at a time when reflection is more vital than ever. Now, let me outline the structure of our town hall tonight. We'll first examine the origins of Orientalism as the artistic movement that emerged in the 19th century. We'll then transition from past to the present, discussing whether Western pop culture and media still perpetuate Orientalist fantasies and stereotypes about the East. And finally, we'll look into the future, debating the role of museums in showcasing Orientalist art. And as we strip away the layers of Orientalism, let's try to look beyond the canvas uh, and into the impact that it has, that it has had and continues to have today on how we see the world and also how we see each other. And on that note, I am delighted to be joined today by students and recent graduates from universities here in Qatar. They will be guiding our conversations today. Thank you guys for being here so much. Additionally, I'm joined by three guests. Khaloud Al-Fahad is a curator, writer, and researcher. She joined Qatar Museums in 2011 and is currently the acting deputy director of curatorial affairs at Lucille Museum. Fatima Bhutto is a speaker, activist, and author, most recently of the book New Kings of the World, Dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy, and K-Pop, which is about the, the rise of a vast cultural movement originating from the global south. 
And finally, Inaya Falarin Iman is a broadcast journalist and commentator who focuses on the topics of freedom of speech and identity politics. Inaya is also the cultural management and youth engagement trustee for London's National Portrait Gallery. We are so honored to have you all join us tonight to have this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and thank you to everybody for joining this town hall. Now, if it didn't already catch your eye, because we're putting it up right now, I want to draw everyone's attention to this painting. This is an 1866 painting by French artist Jean-Léon Jerome. Khaloud, as the curator of the Lucille Museum, which is set to house the world's largest Orientalist art collection, talk to me a little bit about this painting, okay? What are we looking at right here, and how is it both perpetuating Orientalist stereotypes and also uh, very representative of Orient Orientalist art in that era. Of course, John Leon Jerome is a French artist of the 19th century, one of the leading in stereotyping the Orient. Um, the viewer, okay, uh, when looks at okay, uh, such a painting, for example, in the 19th century salon, uh, will definitely assume that John Leon Jerome has encountered such a scene, okay, in his visits to Cairo, um, with all of this you know, like with those accuracy, okay, and photographic uh, quality of the painting. Um, unfortunately, Kijan Leon Jerome, okay, is using the doorway of a mosque, okay, and turning turning such a place which is used to be, uh, which is used to be like, you know, or which is supposed to be a place of peace and serenity where people worship their God, um, turn it into a scene of very creepy um, uh, scene, okay, with all of these cut off heads uh, piled at the doorway. Um, uh, a lot of research was done, okay, so this is an example, okay, before I talk about the research, but this is an example, okay, a very good example of how Orientalist art, okay, was um, in the intersection between fact and fiction, okay, between imaginary and uh, reality, imagination and reality. So, um, a lot of research was done, okay, about this painting, and uh, all of the schoolers, okay, they proved that nothing that Jalil Jerome has never okay, seen such a scene. Okay, it was impossible for contemporary Egypt okay, to have such a scene okay, in the streets, uh, especially in front of a mosque door. Um, but this is okay again, um, an emphasizing on the stereotype of the barbaric Orient, okay, which needs control, which needs the West to go and civilize them, okay, to make to save them from themselves, as just George Bush said, okay, in the in the, in the movie uh, we've seen. Um, but you know, as we said, okay, uh, Orientalist art is is very free, okay, uh, space which gives a lot of, you know, of freedom and the interpretation, okay, uh, of those kind of scenes and. Um, and paintings. Uh, also, we see that, okay, uh, just okay to prove that this is an imaginary okay, uh, scene. Um, John Leon Jerome, okay, for example, okay, was collaging okay, different elements from different architecture okay, uh, for that uh, um, uh, for the for the mosque is depicting. So it's not even the real mosque, okay, which is referred to in the title. Um, so this is okay. Uh, this is where we give okay a chance for such artworks okay to be depicted differently, maybe today, okay, in our world, okay, uh, to see it okay from a different lens. Okay. Fatima, I want to turn to you because even though this scene of a mosque with skulls hanging and, and you know, beheaded heads at the doorstep is fictitious, as she pointed out, uh, it has an impact, right? We're talking about a 200-year-old painting, but it still matters and it carries weight. And much of your writing dismantles the very same stereotypes about the East, if you want to call it, that, that we're looking at right here. Why do you think these stereotypes are so persistent today? And 
Do they still influence how the West sees the East? Oh, they absolutely influence how the West sees the East. Um, in order for France and England, and then later on the United States, to go out and rape and pillage most of the world, um, they had to portray themselves as paragons of virtue, of science, of rationale, of enlightenment. And they had to portray the people they were going to invade and occupy as the opposite, as savage and barbaric. As Khulud said, it's a fantasy. And it's a fantasy they're getting away with for hundreds of years. And we know that it's pervasive because we are living through it every single day. Some periods, um, it's more transparent than others. So all you have to do is look at the language that was used before the Iraq invasion. You heard, unfortunately, a snippet of it. Um, it's a dehumanizing language. You only have to read the Wall Street Journal any day. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's happening. It's in the Wall Street Journal. And you only have to watch a Hollywood movie. Edward Said himself said that when Arabs or, or Muslims are portrayed in Hollywood, they are either villains or fanatics. And if they're good guys, which is a really big if, because they're never good guys, but if they are, then they're collaborators or native informers. They work with the CIA, or they're a cop, or they're the FBI. And this is for a reason. Um, you know, soft power paves the way for hard power. We call it propaganda. But as Rage Against the Machine said, <laughs> and I'm happy to quote them here in Doha. Please do. Um, that there's a very thin line between entertainment and war. Um, all this is preparation. Uh, and you know, we look at it maybe as innocent. It's not innocent. This is the preparation for a political project that we're living through that has disastrous consequences and is really rather racist at its foundations. I want to turn to you, Inaya, because a lot of people find art, like this particular painting, offensive. How do we engage with people who find it offensive? How do we contextualize art like this, or, or do we even? I think what uh, the Halud's description of this artwork actually really just highlights the importance of displaying it, because it's actually such a rich source of intellectual, artistic, moral, and political history that can be um, illuminated and discussed from just one piece of artwork, regardless of what you might uh, think of the history itself. And I think if we use offence as the yardstick for whether or not we should display or discuss particular representations and so on, and I think that we're in a very worrying place because, as obvious as it sounds, human beings, we are, by definition, diverse. We're informed by different cultures, different histories, uh, different religions, and that undoubtedly will lead to many different interpretations of particular events um, and particular representations. And I think the thing is about art itself is oftentimes the most thought-provoking um, and compelling artworks are deeply offensive because they uh, challenge us and, and ask us to question um, often deeply held taboos. And there's many things now that we do take for granted, um, whether that is uh, equality for women uh, or other values and so on, that at one point in history uh, were regarded as both fringe and offensive to the orthodoxy at the time. So I don't think offense. Um, is a very uh, compelling uh, reason to not depict something or not to discuss something, because one person's offence could be someone else's completely different view. So in terms of how we actually engage with these kinds of artworks and historically contextualise them, as you, as you mentioned, I think my starting point is to recognise 
that two very mutually exclusive, often uh, opposing views can even have uh, very compelling, meaningful, and sincere justifications for those views. And I think that as long as we keep the space open to allow those perspectives to be discussed, and this is not to say that um, everything should be relative and you know, there are no standards. Of course, we should negotiate uh, right and wrong, but I think we have to start from the perspective that as long as we keep the space as open as possible, as citizens, as human beings, we can come to different conclusions, and that is okay. So, okay, this is super interesting so far, but let's also not forget that in addition to long dead artists and pieces of work like this from 200 years ago, we're also talking about very real, very alive human beings. And here I want to turn it to our students and recent graduates on stage, and I want to know who among you has a story to share about how you might have been affected by Orientalism? There's so many hands up, so let's start over here. You had it first. Hello everyone, my name is Hanin Derwish. I'm a student in interior design, and I do think we face Orientalism in our daily lives, not just me, but everyone, even if it's indirect or we don't notice it. One simple example is that I was once searching for the name of the French, uh, the name of the inventor of the camera, and then Google shows me that it's a French inventor, and then da da da. But then the actual thing is that it's foreshadowing the narrative of the uh, uh, the Arabic inventor. His name is Ibn al-Haytham, and he's a mathematician, a physicist, and an astronomer, and he's done a lot of stuff that contributed to the camera that we actually use nowadays. So one thing I want to point out is that it's actually important for us to stop for a second and reflect on the information that we, we are digesting in, in our daily lives. Thank you. Absolutely. I want to turn it over here. Dafan, do you have something to say? Hi, my name is Dafan. Um, I'm a Palestinian who was born and raised in Qatar. And I went to university actually in the UK. And I remember when I first met some of my friends actually who are also from the UK, they told me, Lafan, where are you from? And I said, Palestine. And I said, oh, Pakistan. <laughs> and I was like, you know, we're not that two-dimensional. And they're like, okay, so um, you guys have roads and, and, and buildings? And I'm like, um, yeah, you know, we drive cars, we have highways. And I opened, a f opened my phone and I showed them Qatar National Library. I'm like, this is just a library, you know? And they kind of looked at me and they're like, we thought you were like transporting things in, on camels and... So for me, it was just insane to see how something like, you know, Aladdin or something like the news was going to make someone think that, you know, the East is two-dimensional. You know, as they said earlier, that it's super diverse and it's just, you know, I think it's really unfair for us to be kind of dismissed that way. And, and that gets to so much of the essence about what Orientalism really is, right? The West progresses, the West advances, but the East is stagnant, doesn't evolve, right? And, and doesn't advance. So we're gonna pull up another painting here on screen that I want to ask Khulud about. Enlighten us a little bit more about the Orientalist tropes that we see here in this painting by Frederick Arthur Bridgman. Yeah, Frederick Arthur Bridgman in this painting is trying to give a snapshot of the Algerian life uh, by painting ladies sitting idly, okay, in a very nice paradise-like, you know, setting, which is unfortunately not the real life of the Algerian society. It's just the way the, or the West were imagining them, okay, dreaming of. Um, uh, 
how the you know how the East looks like, um, and you know in such uh, an attempt by the artist, okay, or by the interpreter, okay, it gives um, an authenticity to the you know to the um, uh, colonial endeavor, uh, especially when we see that. You know, they interpreted okay from a point of view that the artist has invaded. You know those you know very private spaces okay of women okay which were uh, prohibited okay to be entered okay especially by foreigners and by men in particular. Um, so such a scene. Um, Although it looks very nice, okay, and static, those ladies okay, look like more of accessories and an exotic tableau. Uh, it deprives, you know, the Algerian people, okay, from their dynamic life, from their rich culture, okay, which uh, which is hidden, okay, under such a scene. Just to be clear, an artist from the West like this, would, would he have actually ever had space, like access to this kind of space? No, and this is why we say, okay, by invading, you know, the space, okay, he, he gives, you know, this kind of authority to the colonial endeavor, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's a message. It's a very, you know, like, it's, it's hiding a very, you know, like, political statement in it. And, and, know, and yeah. many of these Orientalist artists from the West never even necessarily traveled there, right? Exactly, but just their imagination, you know, based on what they want to, you know, like what they are thinking. But also there's something important okay, about those. As I said, okay, this is art, okay, and it's very free, you know, giving a free space, okay, to the people, okay, to interpret it. Other interpretations also, okay, could lie okay, under that kind of a work of art. Um, for example, okay, some people say, um, have, you know, like interpreted it as being, you know, you know, a Western artist talking to the Western okay, audience about the West itself. So, such okay, a way of depicting, you know, the woman in a paradise-like okay, space. Um, it's just, you know, it's either okay because they are depicting okay, the status of the woman in Europe and in the West, okay, at that time, okay, being unable to correct their societies, or also, okay, it might be like, you know, the nostalgia those artists, okay, are looking, okay, for, okay, you know, before, before the, um, before the uh, industrial revolution, okay, so they used to think that the days before the industrial revolution, okay, was uh, a paradise-like, okay, so they are not really, you know, happy with what's come after the revolution, so. So, you know, they found in the Orient, okay, a free space, you know, like to express their feelings, okay, uh, through that exotic, okay, unknown, the unknown. <laughs> I want to I wanna hear you guys' opinions on, on art like this. Do you think there's any value in, in this type of art, uh, regardless of its historical context? Should we engage with these type of works? Let's turn it to you, yeah. Hi everyone, my name is Arham Khalil and I am from India, but I've lived in Qatar. Uh, and India especially is a region that has been, been such artworks a lot of times, right? And a lot of these artworks have been true to an extent, and, but my only, quite, my only concern comes to the fact that the only focus is on these regions, rather than like focusing on the other regions of India, because that then implies the stereotypes that goes on, goes on in the society. And for me, I feel like we should engage in such art because we can question them. As an Indian myself, like, I love questioning the art I see about my country. Like, is it true? To what extent is it true? And then for people outside India, I want them to question this as well. Like, what am I seeing? Is it true? Who has made this? For example, as you mentioned, like, as someone from the West making something about the East who have never been there, I just feel like that's something we need to question ourselves as well. What about you guys? Anyone agree, disagree here? Hi everyone, I'm Lolo Altani, I'm a junior interior design, and I also agree with her opinion. I think we do, we should showcase this kind of art, 
But at the same time, we should show the opposite, an art that shows a true point of view. And then we leave the audience to question what is, why these two art pieces are different. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think I agree. It's, it's, uh, it has some kind of truth. It's not completely truth, but it has some kind of truth in it. Like maybe, maybe the design in the, uh, in the drawing is true. Maybe they did have this kind of design. Maybe the content's not true, but maybe some of it. Maybe they did actually have these kind of dresses. Mm -hmm. So I'm not completely against showing these, uh, this kind of art. Interesting. Now, are we giving the average art consumer too much credit for maybe being critical and asking these questions, uh, you know, which, which we would, one would hope they would do? Um, hello, everyone. My name is Fairuz. Uh, I'm Colombian, Palestinian, Lebanese. And I definitely agree with what, what was just mentioned about how you know, art is sometimes not consumed critically. Like, uh, we don't know if the person who's viewing this uh, piece of work has the enough knowledge to question if it's a reality or if it's fictitious, as you've mentioned. And uh, again, going back to saying that if we need to engage and portray them, I think definitely we need to discuss it in order to uh, kind of like increase this knowledge of like what's real, what's not, and how these Orientalist tropes kind of engage and increase the hegemony of the West on the Orient, even though I don't like to use Orient because we're very diverse. So on this area that is depicted in such a false manner. So yeah. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum everyone. My name is Intisar. I'm from Algeria, specifically from the city of Algiers. Have you seen this, this picture before? Is from. <laughs> exactly. I've seen these pictures and many other pictures similar to these. Um, definitely there are many orientalistic paintings that uh, represent Algerian women. However, unfortunately, they, I see most of them, they try to sexualize Algerian women, show them in a mysterious way, lazy way, accessory way. Um, how, but still, on the other hand, I see some of them are harmful, definitely, they misrepresent us. But from the other hand, many of them, they bring us like a picture of what was Algerian women living like, what clothes they are wearing. Like, I can confirm that those, part of, uh, those clothes are part of our culture. They're called Kereku, Ghlila, Sirwalmdor. So all of those are part of the history, even like uh, the jewelry they are wearing, Khalkhal. So uh, they are part of reality, even the architecture, the interior design, the city from there, it's the Kasaba. So it really relates to uh, the place we, I'm coming from. I can confirm that. So we can say, we can engage with the art, the paintings of the art Orientalists take some values from them, but definitely be always aware and critical about them. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for your thoughts on this painting. We're going to move on to our next topic, where I actually want to bring this conversation forward 200 years. Modern Western narratives often appear as extensions of 19th century Orientalist cultural perspectives. I want you to watch another clip right now. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed, children being killed every day with Putin's missiles and his helicopters and his rockets. These are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine. I mean, that, quite frankly, is part of it. These are um, Christians, they're white. Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, 
you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. When you watch something like that, how do you see it as perpetuating the Orientalist stereotypes that we've been talking about this evening? But yeah, I want to hear from everyone here. Go ahead. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Bayan. I am a student at Georgetown University in Qatar, and I'm majoring in international politics. And I think what we see here through these reports is the process of othering. So creating this dichotomy between the East and the West, where we have the East as barbarians, as people that are acclimated to violence and uncivilized. And we have the West that are civilized people that are not used to violence. And so when an invasion in Ukraine happens to Europeans, this is such a tragedy and it's such an abnormal event. However, when there's an invasion in Iraq, well, these are violent, barbaric people that are acclimated to violence. So it's not such a tragedy and it's not so abnormal. And this practice of othering and this practice of depicting Eastern people as barbaric has been weaponized historically to justify colonial conquest. And we see that this is evidence that this has never disappeared in these reports. And today, with what's happening in Gaza, you have the Israeli defense minister stating that Palestinians are human animals. So this perception of the West as uh, viewing the East as barbarians has never disappeared. It continues to be weaponized today instead of colonialism, or maybe you could identify it as a modern form of colonialism, but you can definitely say that there's the justification of war crimes currently happening through depicting Arabs as barbaric, as human animals. And I'd just like to point out that I am Syrian. So the second report states that the refugees of Ukraine are different because they're Christian and they're white, which is quite ironic because 10% of the Syrian population is actually Christian arguably I'm white so the reality is that doesn't make me more deserving of sympathy but what that does mean is that this journalist with her journalism degree has no idea what Syria is and has no idea what Syrian people are absolutely absolutely go ahead Hello everyone, my name is Iza Alyssa and I am an Indonesian artist living here in Qatar. Um, and I first learned about Orientalism or the topic of it here in freshman year here in VCU Qatar. And when I first um, heard about it, I was just like, okay, I definitely see it, but we dive so much more into Orientalism in the Arab world and, uh, and such. And I completely agree and I feel like it's much needed. But then I realized that, like, hold on, like, it's something that I see it happen to my people as well. Um, and then when I looked into it, I realized that the Orient is, you know, the other, which is everyone from the East, the West, uh, West Asian, South Asian, you know, it's a huge uh, chunk of people just like flatten into one thing. And um, just to put uh, things into context, uh, again, I, I said I'm Indonesian, and Indonesia alone, uh, from one distance to Indonesia, to the other, it's the same distance from Qatar to China. So it's a very large country with hundreds of different languages, not dialects. And so that's one country as, you know, as an example. So regarding to what Bayan was saying, it's very like the term Orient or this whole idea is very reductive. And I feel like that contributes to exactly what we're seeing in the news and everything. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hi, my name is Yasmin Abghazaleh. I'm an educator. And I want to point out that these media reports don't just happen. Um, as Fatima said, the art has actually paved the way for this to happen because they're painting us as the three Bs, as they say, either a bomber, a billionaire, or a belly dancer. <laughs> so 
then when something happens, oh yeah, yeah, they're bombing the bombers, it's okay. It's justified in the public eye. They don't have to put in so much effort to convince the Americans that this is, this is okay. It's already, it's already been done for 200 years. So they've already paved the way for that. If I can jump in, Dina, I think there are so many current examples, and I just want to leave you with a couple of them that have really exposed to me, a, not just an intention here to other, as, as you mentioned, but the hypocrisy behind it. Um, Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House in the United States, who has refused to say anything about a ceasefire, was photographed wearing a bracelet made from bullets that Ukrainians used to kill Russians with. Um, you know, we saw video go viral over the past week of Ahad Tamimi, um, and, and there was a fascinating backstory at some point during the Ukrainian, the early days of the Ukraine invasion. Ahad's video was picked up, and she was represented as a young blonde Ukrainian girl fighting a Russian soldier. Um, and at the time, everyone was like, wow, how amazing, what courage. The moment they found out she was Palestinian, of course, then that ended. Ahad is in detention today. Um, you know, this hypocrisy couldn't be clearer. And I think one of the most heartbreaking current examples is the fact that, you know, the Gulf War um, one was essentially launched on, on the back of false testimony um, of a young girl who said that she saw Iraqi troops pull babies out of incubators. She lied to a US House Human Rights Caucus. Um, and it helped launch the war. Today, we're watching 37 now, because three have died, Palestinian babies taken out of incubators because their hospitals are being shelled, snipers are shooting people in the hospitals, they don't have fuel, they don't have electricity. And where is the outrage for those babies, for those incubator babies? This is a sinister project, and I think we have to be very clear that we need to be familiar with it, I don't think we need to censor it. I think this is very important for us to know and to watch and to see how we're portrayed. But we need to start being more active in, in our response to it. Thank you. And Could I come back on? You, you wanted to respond? I mean, lots of very interesting points made, but I think that there is also a kind of stereotyping of the West that is going on in much of this discussion. Actually, the West just is quote-unquote, the East, is full of diverse cultures and heritages and political ideologies and movements. And actually, we have referenced Edward Said's Orientalism, which is taught across uh, Western universities. And actually, even the time when he wrote the uh, famous works, he was welcomed amongst the European and Western intellectuals with open arms. His book was widely praised. So there are very strong strands within Western thought that is incredibly self-critical, that has recognized uh, past wrongs and, and present wrongs as well, and is, much, is very much engaged in that dialogue of bringing in lots of different perspectives and trying to understand um, the way in which uh, different groups in different countries have been misinterpreted. So I think that that's a really important to, point to recognize the diversity of the West and the ideologies within it without essentializing it and stereotyping it also. But I also think there's a human point here that the imagination is always uh, limited insofar as in order to draw uh, representations of other things, we are always going to 
get it wrong, we're always going to misinterpret because the nature of the imagination itself is, is uh, mysterious and elusive. And so the idea that the only thing that is valid or important or correct is exact, accurate um, reflections of particular countries or communities, then I don't really know what art would be then, because art in and of itself is something that is always a, a distortion of, of, of what the actual reality is. Um, so I think that actually if we, if we are going down this line, that the only... Uh, important point to take from the artworks that we've seen in other things is whether or not it's accurate, then I think we'd miss the beauty of it, its artistic value, whether or not it's depicting things in an exciting or, 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 or skillful way. So there are other questions to ask, not just whether or not it's an exact accurate reflection. You bring up some important points, and one thing that I want to ask you all as we move forward and on to other topics is, to what extent can we have this conversation in a vacuum, not constantly bearing in mind the power dynamics of it all, that when we talk about the West and the East, you know, when we talk about the colonized and the colonizer, do we always need to be mindful of these, of these realities and of this context? Or can we just appreciate you know, the art for the beauty that it, that it has? I would say power is, is very important here. Um, and I would invite you to imagine a world in which Asian art depicted the West as per our imagination, I don't think they'd be as tolerant of it, um, actually. I don't think they would have the generosity of, of spirit and questioning and criticism that we have to display all the time. Um, the problem, of course, is the power dynamic, is that we don't have the power that France has. Um, we absolutely don't need art to be realistic, but we need to be cognizant of of its effects. Yeah. And if I can just also say one thing, I think that it's a mistake to view culture as innocent. Culture has power behind it. Culture has governments behind it. Culture has funding behind it. And we can enjoy it, we should enjoy it, but we have to be critical of it. That is an excellent segue to where we want to go to next, because we're not just talking about paintings and we're not just talking about journalism. We also want to talk about pop culture here. And in the opening video, we saw Cardi B wearing a caftan and a headscarf, and some people called her out for cultural appropriation. So to you guys here on stage, I want to ask you, is something like that cultural appropriation? Is it cultural appreciation? When is it okay, and where do you draw the line? Hi, everyone. My name is Ana Maria, and I'm from Dominican Republic. Um, I think that when it comes to art appreciation, um, it really depends on the, percept the perception, the viewer, and the one that is being sort of like appropriated. But at the same time, I think that in order to be exact or non-accurate, in order to appreciate art, it must be represented by those who have been sort of like forced into uh, suppressing their arts. I mean, this Western narrative doesn't depict everyone else that's across the Atlantic. It's not just the United States, you know, there's the Americas, there are many different countries, we are many different colors and we're very diverse. And our art is being suppressed by this idea that, you know, the culture only exists within North America. And so when that happens, you know, we try to depict what we know or what we can see that has been preserved exactly. Um, and that's much of the arts and the culture in the East. Uh, more than just appropriating, I think that we're just trying to show that there is more out there rather than what we know. 
Um, and you know, a little bit of, of relation to the conversation earlier as well is that you know, whenever you depict art or whenever you depict something from the West, uh, whenever the West uses Orientalism to point uh, the East as barbaric, um, they're using this sort of idea of you against me. So this is also problematic, that if you don't agree with what we say about what you don't know, then you're against what we do know. And it makes me question them, and we should. Thank you. We haven't heard from you. Salam, my name is Hiba. Uh, I am a digital humanities student at HBKU. Um, I do think that this example, particularly of Cardi B, is relevant because she's a black woman. She is from the global south. So is it the case that when it's someone from the from the global south, someone who is Arab, someone who is a black, do they get like a free ticket, like a green pass to represent and talk about the culture? I don't think so, because we see a lot of people who are from the global south, when they do get to power, they have some of the most anti-immigration policies, they have some of the most racist policies and statements. So it, it's, it's the question of like appropriation versus um, representation is also tied with like authenticity and who is an insider and who is an outsider. And when you determine someone as an insider or someone as an authentic person, an authentic representation, you actually grant them power. So if they're already someone in power, like a pop star, um, you've got to be careful about granting them even more power and say, oh, they're authentic, that they are, like, just simply, just because they are from this region. Um, so I think it, it really ties well with the issue of power dynamics. Um, it, it doesn't relate directly to geographical location, to color, to uh, race. It, it, it ties with how much power does this have, person have, how much they are trying to be honest, how much are they questioning things. So I think that's the, the key here. Inaya, what do you think? Where do we draw the line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? Um, so I, I don't really think there is a line, and, and I don't think Cardi B is from the Global South. I think that she is American through and through, and I think that she would class herself fundamentally as American. And I think, I, I think intention matters. I think that that's a really important way that we have to recognize that was her intention in depicting that to dehumanize, to degrade? Of course not. It was a, an artistic expression. I think there's a real danger in seeing cultures as these fixed, distinct, uh, things that have these rigid borders that other people cannot um, interact with and exchange things. Actually, when we uh, see different cultures, you often find upon deeper investigation that the lines are actually quite blurry, and there's been many ways in which the East, so-called, has um, uh, influenced Western thought and Western discourse substantially, and vice versa. And for example, you know, I. I uh, recently came back from Japan, and um, there is a huge American culture of Japanese people uh, wearing uh, Elvis-inspired clothes, also inspired by African-American hip-hop culture, and I think that that is a glorious example of human creativity and human expression, uh, reinventing things. And they don't need permission from African-American people. They don't need permission from uh, supporters of Elvis um, in America. That, that is the, the free-flowing nature of human beings. And I think that when we police uh, intercultural exchange, and I think what we're actually doing is retreating further into our silos. And what it will ultimately lead is less understanding of different communities and different cultures, because we will not have that free-flowing way to interact. I want to, th I want to throw it to you for a short response, if you have one. 
Um, yeah, I think we should be allowed to to investigate other cultures and and experiment with other cultures. I I don't disagree with um, Inaya at all. I think that the issue um, is more so depiction, not so much curiosity or investigation. Uh, I, you know, I loved your point about power. I think you do have to investigate how much power a person has um, when we're looking at this, but. You know, I don't think you can also police curiosity, and I certainly don't like the idea that you can't be curious about other cultures. Yeah, we coexist together, so people are living together, okay, and especially nowadays, okay, with all of this kind of easy, like, communication between the cultures, okay, so it's, there's no harm, okay, uh, since, like, you know, from the beginning of the history, okay, people are taking from each other what's for their own benefit and what, what helps, okay, in developing their, you know, own culture. So this is something, like, you know, this is a very natural, okay, uh, thing. And it's, it's something, okay, that we should also, okay, be happy that if someone is taking from other culture, that means, okay, this is something good, okay, that people, okay, won't feel proud of it, okay, or give it, or give them, you know, some kind of power or whatever. So this is something very, I think, positive, yeah. Thank you. So Orientalist tropes aren't exclusive to the Middle East. The West often willingly or unwillingly dehumanizes Asian identities in pop culture as well. Let's take a look at this clip that we've edited for brevity. Techno-Orientalism differs a bit from Edward Said's definition of Orientalism. Instead of seeing Asia as just backwards and uncivilized, Techno-Orientalism represents Asia as so technologically advanced that it has no humanity. <laughs> you would have had to edit it for brevity because we'd be here all night otherwise. Um, <laughs> Yeah, with that said, please do respond, do respond to that and to the thoughts on the portrayal of Asian you yeah. know, cultures in the West as so technologically advanced and, you know, dehumanizing. Yeah, you know, Asata Shakur said, nobody in, in the world, nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom, I would add, dignity, by appealing to the moral sense of their occupiers. Um, I think we have to stop ascribing morality to states. States do not have morality. Um, they have as much morality as the furniture on the stage. Um, and we have to start seeing them as that. As such, these depictions that we see on the TV or you know, on television, they're not accidental. They're purposeful. And they're always connected to politics. So you know, whether we're talking about East Asians in the sense of the Japanese during the World Wars or the Chinese today, these are people who represent a significant existential threat to Western hegemony. So it, it shouldn't be surprising that they're going to be portrayed as cold or robotic in the same way that Muslims are portrayed as violent or submissive. Um, you know, you have to look at culture closely with politics, I think. And we have to remember as well, when we're looking at media, whether that's film or the news, that these are not innocent institutions. They are ideological institutions. You know, the clip we saw earlier, um, where that guy said, with all due respect, and then proceeded to be really disrespectful. Um, that's the, you know, that's the BBC. You know, we, we weren't watching some random like channel from a village somewhere. These are national, uh, outlets, they have a responsibility. And when they fail that responsibility, I think we have to ask ourselves why, you know? Yeah. Inaya, what do you think? When we're talking about stereotypes here, are stereotypes by definition always inherently negative? 
Well, on the point about uh, techno-orientalism, I think that, that that's quite an interesting one because, you know, having spent some time in, in, in Asia and obviously being someone that was born and raised in the West, actually I would say there's a lot of admiration for the technological advancements that many countries in um, East Asia has made, whether that's uh, South Korea, uh, Japan, and so on and so forth. So, and also, you know, cyberpunk um, from Japan has had a huge influence on uh, video gaming culture um, within Western society as well. So again, I think there's always the, there are these nuances and complexities that I think Orientalism as a concept often just uh, removes and often reinforces this East versus West idea. So for example, actually, I've seen a, a huge change in the way uh, the Far East has been depicted uh, over the last uh, few decades due to the fact that they have economically advanced substantially. So growing up, um, I can admit that there were these depictions of uh, uh, the Far East as uh, underdeveloped and, uh, and all sorts of ne negative stereotyping. But the, the context has transformed to such an extent where uh, many of these voices are now making themselves heard and are, and are completely shaping the way that they are depicted. So I think that we have to be careful not to remove the agency um, from uh, many people themselves that actually push back, that shape Western thought as well, and actually redefine their own stories. And that, that relationship is constantly going and ongoing. If I can just jump in here, I think it's an important point that Inaya's raised. Um, and I wrote about this. It's not so much that the West has embraced Asian culture. It's that the rest of the world embraced Asian culture. And the West is actually coming in at the tail end of this. So I grew up in Syria. I remember watching Japanese soap operas on television in the 1980s. You know, that's when we were looking at Asia. And that's when we were studying Asia and learning from Asia. Um, you know, when was Squid Games on Netflix? Like two years ago. Yeah. Uh, and we see the same with South American culture. You know, you have, um, whether it's telenovelas or you have music, in Asia, in the Global South, decades before it hits um, the West. And so I think we also have to look at the way in which the world is changing. Culture is being set, it's being made, and it's being consumed by non-Western people. And it's going to dictate how culture changes and how it looks in the future. Thank you. Okay, so now I want to explore the evolving role of museums in presenting historical artworks that some find offensive. There's an ongoing movement to decolonize museums, revise artwork descriptions, and in some cases, remove pieces altogether. But not everyone is open to the idea. Let's watch this interview The Telegraph conducted with the deputy, uh, uh, with the director of the National Army Museum in London. So you don't feel any pressure whatsoever to put a plaque on saying, well, you, you know, you, viewers or the people here must remember that the British Empire committed terrible sins, we invaded other countries, we you know, were involved in slavery, obviously not at this period, but, but, but before. Um, you know, this was a, an enterprise to dominate and exploit other peoples. I mean, here we, here we were in the gallery on the First World War, and we, we, joined, the, you know, we joined with allies uh, to fight the Germans because they invaded neutral Belgium. And as I said, you know, millions of, of soldiers from across the world volunteered to help us in that fight. Um, and then you'll see images around here of Indian soldiers and, and, and others um, who were part of that. So, no, there's no, there's no need to, to, do, to do anything other than to tell this story. And it's important that people understand this story. 
Inaya, you're, you're very plugged into the art scene, as we mentioned in the introduction. Tell me about your thoughts about this decolonize the arts movement. Do you support it? So I, I have my concerns about it. So undoubtedly, I think um, I welcome the idea that we should uh, make us more aware of stories that were historically marginalized, perspectives and voices um, that were not included in how we understand particular historical events, uh, particular literature, particular artistic forms, and so on. But I think that there's a danger in really uh, blurring what we mean by decolonization. To me, I think decolonization is the kind of formal political process of removing a colonial power. I think there's a very different thing when we talk about decolonization when it comes to art, when it comes to ideas. As I've alluded to in previous um, elements of this discussion, actually, history is much more complicated than just seeing it through a binary racial lens or seeing it through an East versus West lens. And actually, oftentimes, uh, marginalized and colonial voices use the ideas of the Enlightenment, use lots of Western ideas as a way to hold a mirror to the West against their uh, ability to live up to their own ideals. And so when we're talking about uh, decolonization, what, what ideas are we actually removing? Is it ideas of uh, you know, uh, parliamentary democracy? Um, is it ideas of uh, so many things that the West has championed um, in many ways as well. So I do think that whilst we should open the uh, perspective to lots of different voices, I think that there is a danger in um, essentially, again, reinforcing a division which sees certain ideas as only Western or certain depictions as only Western and everything else is uh, as a victim or everything else as Eastern. And again, that's, I don't think history is as binary as that. What do you think, Fatima? What, what should we be decolonizing when we talk about decolonizing the arts? I think this is such a fascinating time to have this conversation because we've seen protests um, banned in uh, American universities. We've seen people being fired from their jobs, being censored for simply having the completely uncontroversial opinion um, that there should be a ceasefire, that Israel should be stopped. Um, from pummeling Gaza at this moment, um, we've seen parliaments, um, whether we're talking about the Congress or the, the parliament in the UK, whose populations are overwhelmingly in support of a ceasefire, refuse to even debate the topic. So I think the idea of Western values is really broken at the moment. And I think what all of us have noticed is that there is a Western value for the West, and then there is another value for the rest of us. Um, but when we talk about decolonizing, I think we have to decolonize. I think we have to decolonize everything. That means museums, that means our libraries, that means our thinking. And what it means really is not that anything should be destroyed or anything should be removed or anything should be censored, but that we have to start looking at things correctly. We have to start using the right names for things. Let's not forget that museums um, their genesis is part of the colonial project. Colonial powers used museums in the same way they used um, census or education to categorize, to order um, their version of history, to decide what would be included and what would be excluded. Of course, we should have museums, um, but we should remember where museums come from and what purpose they served. I don't think it's a question of black or white. Certainly nothing in the world is black or white, but certain things are true. 
colonialism is theft. I, I, I mean, it's theft of land, it's theft of resources, it's theft of heritage, it's theft. And whatever positive we want to take from colonialism, I think we should remember, um, was, not, was not done for the natives. You know, the British built railroads, not for us, it wasn't a gift, it was for them, <laughs> because they were using them. So there are certain things we, we have to look at with a wide lens. Um, and I think for too long our conversations have been dictated by the powerful who set the narrative. And it's time to question all those things. And, and, and I don't think that should be seen as threatening. It should be welcomed in the spirit of debate, just as we're having here tonight. I, I see you want to respond. <laughs> well. I think one of the things that I I'm concerned about is almost a reverse form of Eurocentrism, where we see the West as this uh, unique, uh, all-powerful being in the world that is essentially responsible for everything and has behaved in a way that is historically so unique so as to uh, make it particularly distinct. I mean, even when we talk about colonialism and when we talk about empire, the British Empire, the French Empire are not the first empires in the world, you know, whether that's the Ottoman Empire or the Benin Empire. And many of those empires behaved in a wide range of ways that today we would disagree with and some that we would agree with. Um, and we don't view many of those empires in the same way that we view the West. And I don't think we engage critically with the practices and behaviors and the way in which languages were erased. Uh, certain ideas became dominant and certain ideas became marginalized. And I think when we uh, hold the West uh, to this uh, overwhelming, unique, uh, omniscient force, then I think that we actually end up reinforcing uh, senses of superiority amongst Western elites um, as responsible for all things and, and, and superior. And so I think, as I said earlier, I think there is a danger as uh, black and brown Arab people, um, and I include myself in that, of course, as taking away our own power, taking away our own influence in the way in which we have shaped the world as people as well, and making all the power in the white West. And I think that only serves to reinforce senses of superiority and inferiority. I'm, I'm going to have to say, I'm really glad you mentioned the Ottomans. Um, I think there is a massive difference between empire. Of course, all empire is, is, in, is at its core interested in power and expansion. But the Ottomans didn't settle their territories. Um, the Ottomans, the Mughals, these are people that allowed religious freedom. I don't think they can be compared at all with the French in Algeria or in Morocco, um, who committed not just vast amounts of theft, um, but violence, violence to a degree that these places have never recovered from. You know, we're not sitting here having this conversation in Turkish. We're having it in English. You know, that is the result of the British Empire. Uh, what is the number? 18 countries in the world were not invaded by the British? 11? 11, sorry. 11. How many countries were invaded by the Turks or by the Arabs? I mean, the, the, there's no parity really here. Not that I'm excusing empire in any way, but there is a difference. And there is particularly a difference in terms of exploitation and violence that was practiced and continues to be practiced by the West. We have heard a lot of strong... <laughs> and popular points being made. And I want to give a chance to our, for our students to respond and maybe expound on something that you heard. We've heard from you. 
Assalamu alaikum. I'm Iman Ismail. Um, I work here in Qatar Foundation. Uh, graduated from Georgetown University um, in Qatar. And with regards to the conversation about Orientalism, for one thing that constantly comes to mind is this idea of the false dichotomy between the East and the West. Um, it's, I think it's become synonymous with the powerful and the powerless. I'm Sudanese, but I was raised in Southeast Asia. I come from this part of the world where danger is constantly lurking. We're used to it. It's as if we have a higher, a higher pain tolerance as people who come from the global south. But that's ultimately not correct. I think that's never been proven scientifically. Um, but you can still say that the conversations that are being had, even when it comes to art, you can say that it's just a piece of art on the wall. Let me just enjoy what it is. But what has it allowed you to do? It's allowed you to perceive someone now as the other, because they're on the other side. They cannot defend themselves. And you've allowed them to be seen as weaker or as lazier or as whatever it is as hypersexualized, and that becomes the norm. So decolonization, that process, ensures that we, we unlearn for the sake of liberating the oppressed. It's not for the sake of the oppressor. They can join the conversation if they wish to, yeah. but you ultimately have to allow the liberation of the oppressed so that they understand that their narratives are powerful and that they, as people, their lives are valuable, valuable as well, so that when news pieces come like this, they know that I can respond. I have the power to respond. I can be angry, but I will also respond academically and literate. Thank you. Do you? Um, I would like to add on the conversation again. I feel like it's very important to bring accountability to this debate or this conversation, given that the only thing that I feel like we want is accountability from the West to say that yes, they did us harm, they represent us wrong, and because of these representations, the hegemony of Orientalism is expanding even in us. It's so integrated in our societies, in our cultures, that we start to portray ourselves in their lens. So, for example, when I go to Colombia and Latin America, or I'm speaking to someone who's Colombian, they don't consider me Colombian just because I wear the hijab and I look from the East and they claim that I'm not a real Colombian and that I should go back to wherever I came from because I'm Muslim. And again, there's these uh, misconceptions that are brought because of Orientalism that they need to take accountability for these things. And we are having this conversation to further disseminate that and it's very important to point that if they're not going to take responsibility for, for what they've done, we can't really move forward with this conversation because it feels like we're just talking to a wall and there's no, you know, they're not joining the debate. Like, they're free to join the debate, they're free to talk to us, but they're not. So it just feels like you're just talking to, into a void. So, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I want to, well, like, maybe even hear from you. I want to give you a chance to respond. Let's go. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Al-Hadar. I'm a student in HBKU. And I want to touch on the point you just raised and my experience, actually, and how this goes beyond even the people in the East and the West, and it even affects people back in Africa, right? So I am from Ghana, and I remember the year I came to Qatar, the year I got admissions here to come study. I had admissions in um, the United States and the UK as well. So I sat my friends down and told them that I was going to leave Ghana, and I'm moving to Qatar, but I'm not going to the US and the UK. And if you see the look on their faces, like, bro, what is that? Why are you going to Qatar? Haven't you heard what's going on there? And I mean, it was, you know, the time during the World Cup when all the media houses were just attacking Qatar like that. So you could tell that this has 
they've succeeded in making sure that even the people that are far away are affected and see the eastness or the orients as barbaric or, you know, as inferior, okay? So um, in terms of decolonization, growing up again in Ghana, I read a lot of books about um, how our forefathers were colonized, and these books are still in schools, right? Do I want them taken out? Do I want them to ban all the books? Or if I become president, am I going to order them to take all these books from the classroom? No, it is part of our history. This is part of who we are. So. I would want my children, my great-grandchildren, to learn about where we come from and how our forefathers had to go through so much to make sure that we are where we are today. So yeah, that's what I think. Thank you. Let's turn our discussion to how non-Western cultures can maintain their identity amid Western influences like Orientalism. To find an answer, we interviewed Dr. Nayef bin Nahar, who I'm told is in the audience. Thank you very much. Oh, there you are. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. Welcome. So to find an answer, we interviewed Dr. Nayef bin Nahar, who is the director of the Ibn Khaldun Center for Social and Human Sciences at Qatar University. Let's watch. We have two fundamental approaches to dealing with Western thought. One approach completely rejects engagement with Western thought, choosing instead to remain insular within its own cultural identity. On the other hand, there is an approach that lives in a state of total alienation, always thinking of the West, in the West, and disregarding its own civilizational and cultural identity. We need a middle ground, which is the interactive approach. This interactive stance is based on two pillars, intercultural exchange and particularity. Intercultural exchange means being aware of other cultures and attempting to harness what others have to develop one's own civilizational self. Particularity means that we should only assimilate knowledge and ideas from others that are compatible with our own culture and local realities. Thank you. Fatima, we just heard Dr. Bin Nahar's insights on assimilating knowledge and ideas from other cultures only when they're compatible with one's own culture. Mm. So let me ask you, how can non-Western societies selectively adopt no uh, Western knowledge in a way that aligns with their own cultural identities? Well, I think by doing exactly what we've been talking about, by decolonizing, by expanding one's gaze, you know, history is, is history and the timeline is vast. And I think we can make certain choices to include more, to widen our scope, to include a larger range. And, and I think it's very important to use the correct names for things. That's part of how we maintain our identity. You know, I, I was educated in American and English schools. Um, and I was an adult before I realized that certain things that were taught to me were given the wrong names. You like know. what? Well, for example, in 1857, when Indian troops rose up against the East India Company, it's described as the mutiny, but it's, it's not a mutiny. It's the first Indian freedom struggle. You know, when I was in middle school, uh, we were taught about European kings and queens sending people off, and that was called the Age of Exploration. It's not exploration, mm -hmm. it's colonialism. And, you know, this extends outside of schools, you know, what is a humanitarian pause? It's a completely meaningless set of words we've joined together. It's called ceasefire. So we, we have to start using the correct words, and I think we also have to start adapting the models that we've inherited. I think we can safely say those models are broken at this point. And that doesn't mean we discard them, it just means we expand them. 
And we change them, we innovate them, and I certainly think we have enough work to do on that front. Speaking of a lot of work to do, Halud, <laughs> Lucille Museum has acquired the world's largest collection of Orientalist art, and you guys have the daunting task of recontextualizing it. How are you doing that? As you've seen today, there were a lot of ways looking into those like, you know, works of art. The example okay, of John Leon Jerome, for example, okay, and all of the research was done okay, in order to understand what was the aspirations of the, of the artist. Artist, okay, you know, we have a proverb that says, okay, the meaning of the poem okay, lies in the heart of the poet. So all of the other interpretations okay, were done by people with agendas okay, who have power, okay, just okay, using those works of art okay, as tool okay, to justify what they want. Um, this is why okay, our mission now as a museum is to bring those historical, okay, extraordinary works, okay, and put them, okay, into a more modern, contemporary context, okay, see how do they affect, okay, us today. Um, um, so we are, we are not just a museum, okay, with all of these masterpieces of works, okay, but rather we're a platform, just as what we're doing today, bringing all of these different perspectives, okay, people from different backgrounds, okay, experts, students, have their say, okay, um, and debate and discuss uh, all of these works of art, okay, um, and see how do they reflect on us, okay, on our identities and representations today. And this, this collection will be um, on display in 2030, is that correct? We hope so, inshallah. Okay, okay. so um, we will see, inshallah, okay, in a few years from now. Okay, okay. Uh, the, the okay well, let's, with the collection. Yeah. Let, let's do some brainstorming <laughs> then, because you know they have this. They've acquired all this Orientalist art, and you know, hopefully by 2030, it'll be on display. I want to ask you guys for your thoughts. Is there ever an instance where art should not be displayed at all? If anyone believes that, please raise your hand and tell me why. But if not, I just want to ask you for your thoughts on how some creative ways that museums can break stereotypes and promote a more nuanced view of this art. Hi, hello everybody. My name is Miriam El Maridi. I am a Palestinian born in Doha, Qatar. My opinion on Orientalism and how everyone's spoken about it and shared their experiences and through the history and culture truly has has affected I as an identity of who I am, what is, what is my culture, how can I, what can I be, what so on and so forth, am I fitted into this society, am I like, am I like presented or am I really part of who I am? And to be honest, I feel that what can museums do? I'm a huge believer into communities. And when we are given communities to meet one another, share with one another, we get to learn from one another and teach each other, especially the right words with one another. We can tell them, we can experience and share who we are and what are we. Not to mention, this helps to break the idea of Orientalism. What has the world really shown or get implemented in us that we are a specific image when we are actually not, we are more than that. And especially here in Qatar, what I love is how they are proud to show their culture. You don't just see it within the individuals, but you also see it within their surroundings, how Sukhwaqif is, how Qatara is. And so when we engage in events and bring on communities, especially from the youth, as we do not want to be repeating mistakes from, to, to the younger generations, as I believe that starting young is always the best way to implement the right values and morals and to place identity in, 
is by engaging with those and by sharing, experiencing, and implementing the right words, cultures, and showcase who we really are. And thank you. Thank you. Anyone? Who have I heard? I don't think we've heard from you. And I want, I want you all to jump in, okay? So I'm gonna try to get as many answers uh, as possible. Uh, well, uh, for me, museums are much more than to exhibit the history of a country. Uh, basically, museums are what educates and shapes the future generation. Because whatever we exhibit inside the museum is what impacts us morally, spiritually. Therefore, I believe that these orientalistic arts, which are close to stereotypes, should not be exhibited inside the uh, museums. Because we see, I, as an Eastern generation, when I go to the West and I see that the Western way is actually presenting my culture, and I see that it's wrong, and I was like, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I will say that, hold on, that is not how, I, how Afghanistan is now. But while behind the scene things are different, and on the scene they're presenting my country maybe as a backwarded, as an electric people, people with no knowledge, so that is not how, uh, you know, orientalistic, I can say, art works. So therefore, I believe that museums are what shapes the future generation. If we don't care, about the orientalistic arts, which are close to stereotypes, this will def definitely create an anger inside every single generation. So th that is what uh, it basically creates a lot of problem, you know, for the future generation, and this this will be a headache for the society itself. So to be clear, you don't want these paintings on those walls. Exactly. <laughs> who agrees? Who disagrees? <laughs> you agree. You disagree. Let's hear why. I think um, art is a form of expression. And with expression comes context, comes history. So if I see a painting that is very wrongly depicting my culture, and then I see the artist and who he is or who she is, and I understand where they're from, I'll start to say, okay, maybe this country has a history of colonizing other, other, other states. Maybe I should look into this. So I think that the first step to question anything is to first be exposed to it. So I feel like definitely I agree um, with decolonizing the art, maybe not in terms of removing it. I think that in the museum you can do some very creative things, like maybe put some questions next to uh, a painting, put the context of you know the time that it was made, uh, put some information about the artist and let people maybe connect the dots. But I think the most important thing is that our attention spans are actually reducing with, with globalization and social media, so I feel like also putting these things might be challenging. So it, it's actually not just something inside the museum, but outside. Now we find so many creative content on social media about loads of things. So why can't museums do the same? They should be able to deconstruct the paintings that they're showing us in the museums, not only inside the realms of that museum, but also outside of it. Like let people know, not just within the realms of where art is supposed to be exhibited, but because art is everywhere. Whether you go to the museum or you don't, you're gonna see it. So you need to decolonize it in and outside. One more student. Who's itching to Vernick? I feel like you are. <laughs> I think that you mentioned the point you mentioned in the beginning that we're giving the audience too much credit. People look at museums as that's the truth. So I think Ms. Khulud has a, a great responsibility, Allah Yainik, because she's going to have to pick things. This museum isn't Qatar, so they're going to trust the source. If Qatar um, like put this art, it means it believes in it. So we can't trust all the audience to go to go back home and research and look up the uh, the painting. They they can do their research on other stuff. But if we're gonna present it, we can we have to be 
proud of it, at least. And this is why, you know, when I said, okay, now our museum would be something different from the other museums. So it's not just a place where we host all of these works of art, okay, with their, like, you know, traditional kind of reading or interpretation. But if you look at those kind of, you know, works of art, you will be surprised with the diversity of themes, okay, which it covers, okay, about the exchange between cultures, not only East and West. It goes beyond, okay, the East and West, okay, idea. So there is a lot of things that you can delve, you know, like very go deep in it, okay, and explore other, you know, other areas and other, you know, like other perspectives. And this is okay, the challenge, okay, now how can we have, okay, look at those works of art and just, you know, reinterpret them, okay, and re-understand them, okay, from a different perspective, okay, that, that's more productive rather than destructive between the different cultures. Who agrees with Khaloud? I'm going to give one student another opportunity to speak. Hi, um, I'm Alaq Raad. I'm a recent graduate of Georgetown, Qatar. I agree with Ms. Khaloud because I feel like what's important that it's placed in Qatar is the ownership. It's not like it's in France or the, it's in Britain. It's where like you're depicting the East. It's more the East is showing uh, to the East. And I feel like uh, this is a great opportunity to uh, fill in the illiteracy in Orientalism. It's such a, even the word, it's a mouthful. So I find like we need to, uh, gather or be in the phase of like collecting all the information like we need to simplify it especially like for children what is orientalism because when eight-year-old me would have appreciated because the type of bullying I went where I was uh, get told like I'm a terrorist or I'm Osama bin Laden's daughter it wasn't like the regular type of bullying it is has uh, Islamophobic and orientalist uh, tropes and I feel like just a suggestion on the Lucille Museum is to have a specific uh, section for children and trying to uh, simplify what orientalism is and how um, dangerous uh, the impact is because if like I learned it academically at 19 years old but it would have been so beneficial to be exposed at it and as a curator of the museum it's very um, and it's the power to um, to kind of moderate this type of conversation in a way that it will educate people. And plus, Qatar is the hub of diversity. There's countries I've never heard of before, and I meet them daily in Georgetown, people from Moldova, Romania, the Gambia, and what better chance for us to learn um, in Doha. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. See the focus group we've assembled here for you guys? <laughs> Thank you guys once more for your candid thoughts. As at Doha Debates, as you can see, we embrace the spirit of the Majlis, a welcoming space dedicated to understanding multiple perspectives. And to that end, let's take a moment to reflect on everything that we've heard this evening. From what we've discussed, was there anything that resonated with you or anything that perhaps might have shifted your perspective on something? Hi everyone, my name is Jenna. I'm from Bangladesh, which means because of Orientalism, I'm from India, so. Um, but I grew up here in Qatar, which means my identity is not just twofold, but threefold, because as somebody pointed out, Doha is the hub of international um, 
cultures, everything comes together here. And so I feel like I've grown up with multiple different cultures. And um, what I really found interesting about this discussion is that um, there should be a line drawn on Orientalism and journalism and documentaries and where we essentially expect to find the truth. So when I'm watching the news, I don't want to see Orientalistic tropes. I don't want to see people being dehumanized. But when it comes to art, and this might be a controversial opinion, but I do believe that there is a um, not, like I don't obviously want to see my culture, you know, th through this voyeuristic lens, but I think there is a lot of nuance in that, as Anaya pointed out. And I don't think we could, in, in especially in terms of art, conflate this sort of like argument with like, you know, East versus West kind of thing, because it just perpetuates that sort of argumentative, you know, thing. I think because of the spirit of Majlis, we should aspire to sort of build together in the future so that Orientalism or Orientalistic tropes are not, you know, put forward again or promoted again. And my belief is that, you know, we can't erase the future or, or sorry, we can't erase the past or how people have depicted us in the past. But what we can do is paint the future and build a narrative with our stories, our feelings and our emotions and make it all more inclusive and better for us. So, um, as a journalist, I came to uh, compare journalism and media institutions of today with art and orient orientalistic art in the past. In the past, we didn't have media institutions that we are, as we are having it today, but I believe that what was media is those art. So we should not only perceive them as just like piece of art and we should be appreciating this beauty and art and exhibit them in the museums. But actually, however, we need to really know that that's, it, wasn't, it's, it wasn't coming from an, an innocent place. As media today is not, an, uh, uh, is not an innocent institution, same goes with orientalistic arts and pieces of art that hap uh, happened to be made in the past. They weren't innocent, they were made for a purpose. So we should be always critical about it. That's why I believe that the Sale Museum, hopefully in the future, should uh, be very critical about what to show and what to not show because some piece of arts are made as a crime. They are a crime in history. So we should be very um, critical about showing them to the world or not because their power is very huge and it has a huge impact. And um, that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you. Our time together has come to a close, unfortunately. As we heard from our participants today, we're not just defining ourselves through the prism of others, we're celebrating the identities that have always been ours. Let me thank you all for joining us today, Khulud Al-Fahed, Fatima Bhutto, and Inaya Falar and Iman. We also want to give a special thanks to Dr. Nayef bin Nahar for his valuable contribution, and of course to all of our amazing, bright participants here that give me so much hope in the future. Thank you for being here. And thank you to the Qatar Foundation for bringing us all together and to Lucille Museum and to the VCU Arts Qatar for making this event possible. Let's continue the conversation online on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. We are at Doha Debates on all social media platforms. For Doha Debates, I'm Dina Takruri. Thank you for joining us.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Doha Debates podcast I recently moderated at the VCU Arts University campus in Education City, Doha, on November 14th. For more great content, visit us on YouTube at Doha Debates, and please subscribe to this podcast and write us a review.